what's our time clock at right now? It's a total record time of an hour 30. We probably started at 25 minutes in. So I'm kind of not joking when I'm saying this is a two hour episode. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media, at least usually. Uh, I am one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg. I am incredibly excited because I got to see a movie in a movie theater the other night, and I'm getting my first COVID shot tomorrow. It is a great pre-birthday weekend for me. Joining me, as always, is my fellow co-host. I'm so mad at you right now. (laughs) Uh, Martha Sullivan, librarian, uh, one week out from her first COVID shot, haven't seen a movie in the theater since February. Um, I should say it has been one week since I got my first COVID shot. So um, I would kill a man to go to the movie theater, (laughs) I think. I have good news. As we were talking about (laughs) off air, you don't have to. I know. Um. Yeah, I miss going to the movies so much. Um, I missed a lot of stuff, but like, I, yeah. yeah. That is one particular experience that I'm just like, God, <laughs> I would, <laughs> I would maybe not kill a man. I would pu- definitely punch someone in the face to mm-hmm. be able to go to the movie theater safely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, strangle them with the mask that they're not wearing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is your fault. <laughs> Not your fault. Yes, yes, like, yes. The, okay. the, the general you, right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, speaking of uh, birthdays, uh, this is a very exciting episode for us. This is our 100th episode, if I've done the math right, which we'll just pretend I have. You know what? It's fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, as we mentioned in the last episode, this podcast, uh, the, the germ of it began, if I remember correctly, Uh, The December right after Trump was elected, but before he was inaugurated. And the podcast began shortly after his inauguration. He's out of office. We're still here. Uh, 100 episodes later, we are still going strong. And just as a, 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 a case of pure, sheer rank indulgence, because it is our 100th episode, uh, Martha and I have compiled our top 100. Uh, this is the list of our top 100 things. Um, we each came up with a ranked list of 50 items. So together they make 100. Uh, pop culture, let's pop cultural artifacts. There we I go. Think is safe because it's not like we're not putting pizza on this list. <laughs> yes, that, that is a great example. Uh, and as discussed off air, Wikipedia is not on this list, even though it is probably in my top 100 things. I um, would not have let Pete put Wikipedia on his list. That's absurd. <laughs> um, but we had a couple of rules for both of us going in. The first was that this would be a ranked list. So um, we each are going to be alternating, starting at our number 50. And our number 50 is the least favorite of these favorite things. And number one is the most favorite. Uh, that's how ranked list works. You're not dumb. Um, the other thing was that we could have no repeats across our lists. So Martha got her list up first. She got some things I was thinking of putting on my list. Uh, but that that's great because that means we have 100 unique and independent items to be discussing here. Well, um, and on reviewing Pete's list, he has quite a few things that if I had been... Like, he has quite a few things that I read that and go, 
and went, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so between the two of us, uh, these this 100 list has things that are uniquely us, and then some things that are definitely Venn diagrammed uh, between both of us. Um, before we get into this, uh, so the way this is going to work is this episode is the first 50, uh, or the 100 to 50, as it were. Uh, Martha will share 25 of her items. I will share 25 of my items. Uh, the uh, next episode, then, will bring us all the way home, and we'll get to our top ones on that episode. Uh, before we get into our list, though, we're each going to share the philosophy, like the unique and individual philosophies behind the list making. I know I had some definite rules and some thoughts and concerns as I was building out this list. Uh, Martha, I'm sure you did as well, so... Um, why don't you start? What was your thought process and philosophy and rules behind your list? Sure. So first of all, I want to say that these lists are also going to largely be nonsense. Um, yes, they, because... they are our top 100 favorite things, <laughs> not top 100 best things. Well, I will I will push back on that as well. But what by, by nonsense, what I mean is, so when I started making my list, I grouped my artifacts within like medium so i had um movies and books and video games and tv and like within those each of those individual things i could have done a top 100 list on like its own yes um music was a impossible <laughs> one for me <laughs> so not only did i have to make the decision of like what like how many of each thing was I going to include? Where was I going to cut it off? Um, and then ranking them against each other. Like there will be some things in here where it's like, is that really better than the thing that came before it? And my response is, I don't know, but that's what my, like that was what my jellies told me. Yep. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I started just by listing, um, I, I did start by listing favorites. Um, and then I, I looked at all of them critically and was like, is this just something I love or could I, could I defend this as being the best? Cause that was one of my rules. Like, mm. yes, these are all things that I love, but I, I wanted very strongly to be able to look at what I had on this list and defend it as being the best of something like, I, I was telling Pete before we started recording, I pulled a couple of picks off my list ultimately because while I loved them, they were not defensible as any kind of best <laughs> of anything. So there, there are quite a few things on here that are from my childhood or from when I was growing up, but they have stayed with me. And thinking critically about why they have stayed with me, I think the quality of them like part of the reason I still think about them part of the reason they occurred to me to put on this list is because the quality like the quality of them kind of speaks not speaks for itself but they have lasting power not just because I love them but also because they're good mm -hmm. um I did not choose a lot of things because I thought they would be boring to talk about um like there are a lot of things that people talk ad nauseum about them being the best of something. And I wasn't super interested in that. Like, I don't really want to rehash the quality of some things that we just sort of culturally admit, like, yes, this thing is very good. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
So in that sense, like my passion for something was kind of weighted heavier than maybe just a strict quality assessment. Um, I, I limited myself to um, like one selection by a certain creator. Um, I got weirdly granular in a couple of cases, but not in others. We will get to those more specifically when they pop up. Um, I think that's, that's kind of, oh, and I, I tried, I tried to include things. I didn't include like a set number of every media, but I did try to include a bunch of different kinds of things. Cause I, like I said, I could have made a top 50 list that was just movies, but that's boring. I mm-hmm. could have made a top 50 list that was just books, but I, I also wanted this to be kind of representative of who I am as a medium, as a media consumer. Looking at my list, I have seven unique um, media types. Do you have a ballpark? Like, you know, music, movies, books. Oh, let uh, me you... pull up. Yeah. Let me pull up my other Google Doc that I used for planning <laughs> this. Um, so, yeah, I have mine sorted into movies, books, music, video games, TV, comics, and then miscellany. Mm. Because I had three things that were kind of outside of those categories. Yeah. Um, so I guess technically I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I have eight categories. Sure. If and I, I break up, if I break up miscellany into its component parts. And I, I grouped comics and books under just fiction. So I also then would have eight if I, if I well, pull out, uh, comics. And I'll tell you why, when we get to them, I'll tell you why comics had to be in its own category for me. Cause I also some of my book picks are graphic novels, but mm-hmm. those were grouped under books rather mm. than comics. Comics, Sure, sure. Uh, what well, were your ground rules, Pete? Yeah, so for me, um, I, I had a couple big concerns. As I, So first off, you love making lists. Yes. Um, and I like making lists, but uh, uh, staring down the barrel of 50 of my favorite pieces of pop culture was intimidating AF. Um, so I had some concerns that I think influenced how I saw my list and worked on it. Um, one was that uh, some of these I haven't revisited in years, so they might be thoroughly tinged with nostalgia, and they might be... I don't think any of them are problematic, but like there, I some things are on here for nostalgia-waiting reasons, but they are... I would say critical for my pop culture formulation. We were sort of chatting about this as we were thinking of the lists and you sort of incepted in my mind, the idea of like, pick the weird stuff that you liked in high school. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's a cool concept. Um, I did not say that you liked in high school. I said, pick the weird stuff. Right. Sure. Uh, but like, <laughs> you know, but like, like that idea is sort of then like, per- whatever, it's like you incepted something and, and then my brain took it in that direction. Uh, the other thing I was concerned about was recency bias. So I was very intentional with what I was putting on this list of like, there's definitely a lot of new stuff on here, but I wanted it to, I didn't want to pick anything that I'm super into right now that I don't think is either, um, generally defensible or a marker of a larger trend in my pop culture enjoyment or consumption. Um, I also did a lot of things to stand in for other things or like to stand in for a broader idea. So like you, um, I had a rule that there would be no repeats from any artist. And I broke that rule only once. Uh, and I will defend that choice when we get to it. Um, 
but then when I, I was thinking even broader, it's like, I love dream pop, synthy, shoegazy kind of music, and I could have had a list of ten albums of that genre, but I'm like, no, I will pick one that I think is, is uh, I enjoy a lot, is very unique to me, and then that is the entire stand-in for that genre. Um, so there, there's definitely some of that going on. Um, finally, I weighted heavily things that, and this will appear most often in the fiction, like my, my books, things that like, totally changed the way I thought as I was reading them. Uh, books that I think are very unlike other works, um, and that I still, like, have shaped how I think in certain ways, or, like, things that simply fascinate me. Uh, one of these will be on my top 40 pick, or my, you know, in my, um, 50 to 40 list, uh, so we'll get to it very soon, um, but... That's that's sort of where I was going. I was I was going for things that I think shaped me, that are still defensible. I didn't pick anything that was bad, um, but I was going for the uh, the brain screwing uh, rather than than simply a raw like you know. It's like I might not suggest that Martha you read Anathem by Neil Stevenson, which is on my list uh, for you personally, but for me it was a wild ride that I enjoyed. And we'll get I have to that enjoyed, too. I have enjoyed exactly one Neil Stevenson book. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that the number that you've read or the number you've enjoyed? Uh, it is the number that I have read to completion. Uh -huh. Yeah, fair, 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 fair. <laughs> was that Snow Crash or do you hate Yes, Snow it Crash? was. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, you either like Snow Crash or you really don't like it. Um, yeah, and I'm I've been afraid to revisit it. <laughs> to be totally honest. And like if I were to say what I think the best Neil Stevenson is, I think it's Snow Crash. But that's not my Neil Stevenson pick. Um because I wanted to talk about this like infinitely weirder one that also like was a total wild ride when I read it. Uh and which I've reread, so at least I've come back to it. Uh enough pre-gaming. Yes. So my number 50 is uh the book Game of Thrones. Uh, by uh, a fella known as George R. R. Martin. Um, I was on the fence about this one, but my wife had a very good point where I I read Game of Thrones before it was a TV show. Um, hashtag hipster cred. Uh, but shortly after I moved to Milwaukee, so like, I've read this series now for 10 years. Or I haven't because there have been no books. Um, but I began reading this series for 10 years. I loved it. It was great fantasy at the time. Uh, I think it still holds up in some ways. Other ways, maybe a little more problematic. Um, and then it spawned a massive TV series that not only were we all talking about for 10 years, but like for, for myself at least, all my friends got together every week and watched it in person and like had a big potluck dinner and stuff. Um, so the Game of Thrones media empire looms large over my my pop culture life and like my my time in Milwaukee the last 10 years of my life. And I think the first book I haven't read it in a while, but I remember it being very good and gripping fantasy. Um it's pretty unimpeachable. Yeah. Um yeah, I started reading these in I didn't read these until I was in college. Um I skipped class for an entire day so that I could sit in the bookstore and read A Storm of Swords. <laughs> One of my friends, we were um like it was a Saturday and we were supposed to be lesson planning or whatever. Um she lived above me at the time and she just texted me like, "Yeah, I should be lesson planning, but I'm reading uh, whatever the third book was." And then 8 hours later she texted me, "Oh my god, The Red Wedding," because instead of doing any lesson planning at all that day, she just read Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um 
I am glad that you put this here um, because I think the first one is great. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Martin has largely lost the thread of what he's doing. Um, But no, that happens when you're trying to write a book over 25 years. There's, there's a reason that the first one, like, caught the imagination of so many people um and in the first one when spoiler alert ned stark dies like that was shocking yeah i would argue it is less shocking the more frequently martin pulls that pony out of the stable but that that first move was legitimately um i think did legitimately change something in the pop culture landscape yeah Uh, So number, so that's our number 100. I'm. Oh, good. You're you're going to try to keep. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So I'm going to make us actually list these in order. So for number 99, I have a book called I'm a Stranger Here Myself by Bill Bryson. Uh, Bill Bryson writes incredibly entertaining uh, and tongue in cheek. Well, not tongue in cheek, uh, cheeky nonfiction um and i'm a stranger here myself was published in 1999 and is a collection of article or columns that he wrote for um a publication called the mail on sunday uh about how he as an american moved to britain for a long time and the articles are about him and his wife and his two young children coming back to the United States. Mm. Um, his wife is native, native British, um, but he was born, raised in the, born and grew up in the Midwest, moved to Britain for a long time, and then came back. So I'm a stranger here myself as his reflections on coming back to America after living in Britain and what it feels like to come home. Mm. Um, I... First of all, I think Bryson is an excellent writer. He has written a bunch of travel nonfiction. He wrote a book called In a Sunburned Country about going to Australia. He wrote a book called um, A Walk in the Woods about hiking the Appalachian Trail. Hmm. Um, He is a lovely writer, Pete, that I think you would enjoy very, very much. I would also like to steal his life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But particularly, I'm a Stranger Here Myself, kind of taught me what nostalgia means while I was still like... Mm. a child Mm -hmm. um my sister and i read this book together until it fell apart what uh Um, were you in like high school well it came out in 99 so i was 12 you you read it when it came out yes oh okay yes but he has he has um essays in there about all sorts of things the one that did not make me cry until i was an adult human is a reflection that he writes about his oldest child graduating from high school and going to college. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But also he wrote, one of his essays is just about winter sports and about his like experience trying and being bad at ice skating and sledding (laughs) and snowboarding. (laughs) Like it's, and because he grew up in Iowa, it's all very intensely relatable as somebody who grew up in the Chicago area. Um, And it just, was really kind of one of the first times I read a book and was like, Oh, this is my life too. Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and then also it's just, 
it's one of the funniest like essay collections I've ever read. Nice. Uh, I am adding that to my Goodreads right now. Uh, but actually, I'm not doing it right right now because I need to talk. Um, but I'm pulling up Goodreads to add it. Uh, my number 98, uh, so number 98, is um, in all honest, if I'm going to be honest with myself, I cannot have a list of my top 50 things and not have Bruce Springsteen on here. Um, it's basic, but shut up, who cares? The boss is great. Uh, and I'm going with what is arguably his greatest album, which is Born to Run, 1975. Uh, it's one of those albums where every, like, it could be a best of because every single song is a banger. Uh, and it just happens to be, like, his third or fourth studio album. Um, so, yeah, Bruce Springsteen. One of the things I am saddest about thus far is I have never seen him in concert uh, because... Fans describe it as going to church. Um, it's three to four hour sets, and he just talks and, like, ha you know, hangs out with the crowd, and, like, they do a lot of new... Like, it's it's not, um, uh, like, Grateful Dead or Fish or, like, a jam band kind of thing, but it's just, like, maximum energy, maximum charisma. Bruce Springsteen's a intelligent, charismatic guy who tells fascinating stories in his songs, and Born to Run is a great example of that. Uh, I have seen Bruce Springsteen in concert, oh. <laughs> um, but it was at the New Orleans Jazz Fest, mm. so it was kind of a different experience. He wasn't allowed to have a four-hour set. No, it was it was like an hour, but that was you know he was part of a large music festival. Right, right. Um, yeah, I his his stuff is catchy. I would not say that Bruce Springsteen has ever been like a huge part of my auditory landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, I did date a guy in high school who was seriously committed to him. Hmm. Um, I would say I yeah. like Bruce a lot. I would not describe myself as seriously <laughs> committed to him. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I like when a new spring scene comes out and it's good and, and all the rest. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, he's he's definitely like like when you think of American rock music, I yeah. feel like he's one of the top names that you that people think about yeah. and talk about yeah uh number 97 <laughs> this, I, have... I i love this list because it's just whiplash <laughs> <laughs> yes. um i have a nintendo 64 game uh kirby and the crystal shards so <laughs> my first console that was not a handheld was the N64. Um, and Kirby and the Crystal Shards was one of the few games that I was actually like good at. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it is an extremely cute game uh, where you play as Kirby, who is a small pink marshmallow man uh, who copies the abilities of anything that he eats. Uh, and, uh, Kirby and the Crystal Shards is a side-scrolling platform where you are wandering different planets that each have a different environmental theme, uh, collecting the titular Crystal Shards, uh, which was broken up and scattered by the evil Dark Matter. This was... This was another game that I, I shared, or another thing that I... experienced with my sister... 
Um, it was one of the first games that I bought a strategy guide for because I needed help finding all of the crystal shards. Um, but also as a like a side scroller, it's very accessible. It's very cute. You get to eat different enemies. If you eat different enemies in different ways, they combine in different ways, like their power sets. So like if you eat an ice enemy and an electric enemy, you turn into a little fridge that throws food at people. Like it's very, it's very creative. Um, and was just one of the, one of the first video games that I not only got very deeply into, but actually like finished to completion. Um, and I think part of that is because it is so accessible. Like part of that speaks to the accessibility of Nintendo, um, but also to kind of the universality of Kirby. Yeah. Like he's, he's very cute. He is one of um, the mainstays of Nintendo. Um, I love him. And this was, this was my Kirby game. Anyone who's in the initial roster of the N64 Super Smash Brothers is a Nintendo staple. And Kirby was my favorite character to play in uh, Super <laughs> Smash Brothers for the N64. <laughs> um, I never played Crystal Shards. Uh, unlike you, my first console, uh, non-handheld, wasn't until the GameCube. Um, but I played some Kirby on handheld. And it was delightful because it's the same game. Uh, just different, you know, plots and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, well, at least uh, we aligned in this. My next one is another N64 game because uh, <laughs> the nostalgia is strong. Um, as I mentioned, I never had an N64, uh, but my neighbor across the street did. And this was a game that I played with him and my two brothers, you know, for hours on end on Saturdays, Sundays, weekdays, whenever. Uh, it was, of course, GoldenEye 007, uh, the best first person shooter for a console and which is insanely almost unplayable today um i've definitely played this game at bars in the past couple well not last year but you know in the preceding few years and it's great because everyone is like oh golden i love that game and then they start playing it's like this game is impossible now <laughs> um but it's still a lot of fun and it's you know it's it's raw nostalgia um i started watching the golden eye film um a few months ago and it's like oh the opening of that film i know every location by heart because it's one of the levels in the multiplayer game that's hilarious uh it's like yeah cool awesome i have no experience with this game the games on n64 i was playing were like snowboard kids mm -hmm. and kirby um it was I this also... and smash brothers were the were the mainstays for me yeah i did not play smash brothers either mm -hmm. um well, again, like, I was mostly playing this at other people's houses, so it's, like, multiplayer games. Sure. Yeah. Um, I've heard a lot about GoldenEye. <laughs> Did you never sit around watching other people play GoldenEye? No, I didn't okay. start sitting around watching other people play video games until I was in high school, and we mm. were all playing um, Soul Calibur 2. Mm, mm-hmm, yep, yep. And then later, Halo. Ugh. Soul <laughs> Calibur 2 is way more fun to watch other people play. <laughs> Um, number 95, I have selected the 1997 sci-fi masterpiece, Independence Day. Uh, I thought you were going to say Mars Attacks, which came out six months after Independence Day. You can see my list, Peter. You <laughs> I... knew I was not about to say Mars Attacks. Unlike Mars Attacks, Independence Day is great. <laughs> um, I don't know if it is the prototype of the 
big heroic speech, but it is certainly, um, I would say, one of the archetypical examples when Philip or Philip Pullman, uh, famous speech Philip giver. Philip Pullman is the author. <laughs> Bill Pullman, who plays the president, uh, gets up and starts talking about how today is where we uh, start celebrating our independence. It has great Will Smith one-liners. Um, independence Day is, of course, uh, a movie about aliens coming to Earth and invading, and uh, in which we are bizarrely saved by a virus written on an apple laptop well it's like a cold you see <laughs> we, we, we no, gave the computer a movie, cold this movie is nonsense but also it's brilliant it is um i i really it is the prototype to so many things that became staples of like the big summer action blockbuster genre um it is endlessly rewatchable it is a star turn for Will Smith and also Jeff Goldblum. They're both incredible in this movie. It's just, it's great. Um, I, uh, my, uh, Maren and I have a running list of just movies we should watch. Uh, and I've just added that to our list. I'm sure she is delighted to see that appear there and won't roll her eyes and sigh. <laughs> she, she's seen it though. I'm actually right? not sure. <laughs> if, if she hasn't, I'm going to push real hard. <laughs> it's great. It's like one of the best. It's it, a popcorn. It's... It, it is made like you, you said it was the progenitor of a lot of action movies going forward. And I think that's true. And unfortunately, those future movies sometimes learn the wrong lessons. But like this movie oh, did it sure. first and it did it right. Including its sequel, which is garbage. <laughs> yeah, I never saw that one because I took one look at the trailer and everything about it was like, nah, I'm good. Yeah, pretty much um but yeah independence day it rules yeah uh number 94 going with hamilton uh this could either be the play or the music like just the raw music um the cast album is basically just the entire play without the visuals um we all love hamilton we've talked about hamilton a lot on this here podcast uh i i picked it not only because it's great and delightful and disney plus now has it uh the ability to watch it and also live theater is something that we need to cherish and support once we're able to support it again um but also from a personal level i listened to hamilton a ton when i was starting to um get into running uh for the first time um or like for the first time in the teens um and now that I'm trying to get back into running again, I am finding myself listening to it again because it is a great album to run to. Uh, you skip the slow songs, and then because it's telling a story, you can kind of get lost in the story. And because it's Lin-Manuel hip-hop, uh, it's got a good rhythm and beat to it. Uh, with In the Heights coming out soon, I need to add In the Heights into my running listening rotation as well. I'm actually shocked that you and I have this one so low. Yeah, I... Like, I love Hamilton, and I I could maybe push this higher, but, like, anytime I, I want to push it higher, I'm like, well, then I'm bumping something else lower. Like, it's a real Sophie's Choice situation. That was kind of how I felt and why it ultimately... This was one that I was really relieved that you had it on your list, because like, it I... It just barely didn't make the cut for you. Like, I was trying to fit it in somewhere, but I was having a really hard time deciding what I would pull off of it. And then I saw that you had it, and I was like, oh, good, I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's great. Um, 
I yeah, we, yeah this, we've, and, we've talked about Hamilton a lot on this podcast. I was going to say, this was also one where I was kind of like, what else is there to say about it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Number 93, uh, I have The Animorphs by K.A. Applegate. <laughs> uh, the Animorphs was a series of children's books that were published between 1996 and 2001. Five years 54 books that's actually insane um and i only just now realized that i have two alien invasion pieces of media right next to each other <laughs> um because the animorphs is also about uh, how the the earth is being secretly invaded by an alien race called the yurks who are brain slugs that creep into your head and take over and nobody can tell because they like tap straight into your brain and know how you're supposed to act and pretend to be you. Um, our heroes, the Animorphs, are a group of five children who are between the ages of 11 and 13 at the beginning of these books, uh, who are kind of let into the secret when they witness an alien. They witness two aliens fighting in a construction site. The good guy is killed almost immediately, but before he dies, he gives them the power to transform into any animal that they touch. Uh, and they become the resistance to this alien force. Um, this series is buck wild. One of the kids gets locked into hawk form. The yes, friendly aliens are like scent blue centaur creatures. And people like the, the violence these children suffer, they kill people. Well, they, they kill aliens. aliens. Like they are, they are in a full on war. And this book series is like, yeah, I know that 10 year olds are reading this, but y'all can handle the horrors of war. Right? <laughs> and the body horrors of like, oh no, you're stuck as a hawk now forever. And the, the way that the transformation sequences are described. Even in just like, the front book covers of these book is like Cronenberg esque. Yes. So it's wild, but also it is one of the most sincere depictions of like teamwork and um, like what it means for these kids to be basically alone in the world. Like there are so many, so many great depictions of like the the way that they have to like trust each other. And there are whole books where the theme is like, oh, you made a bad decision in the middle of this battle and now we don't know if we can trust your judgment. So you have to like go off and basically think about what you've done. Mm -hmm. And then the whole book is like a mediation on the philosophies of war. Um, and these books were aimed at 10 year olds. <laughs> um, K.A. Applegate is also fantastic. Um, she is very vocal on Twitter about being pro LGBTQ and trans people, unlike certain other children's authors who will not be appearing on this list. Um, her her stuff, res like the Animorphs resonated very, very deeply, I think, with a certain population of kids who were in grade school at the same time that I was because they were weird. Um, they were about kids who were outcasts or trying to figure stuff out. Um, and also they showed kids being heroes. Mm -hmm. Like at the end of the day, these children like save the world. Well, and they weren't flippant either. And I feel like a lot of books aimed at kids 
at that time with the subject of like alien invasion were very like tongue-in-cheek or flippant like my principal is a space alien type books which oh, i yeah. definitely read books with those titles around the time i was reading animorphs um and just like the difference in tone between those books is just everything yes uh, well, my number, uh, this is number 92 on the list then, is uh, the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, I've been playing this game on and off for, turns out, over 15 years now, so it better be on this list. Um, this is also a good stand-in for any role-playing game. Uh, we've had an entire episode on the show dedicated to role-playing games, so I'm not going to go too far into it. Uh, Dungeons & Dragons is the most popular and famous one, but there are many other alternatives, such as Martha's Go-To, which is Pathfinder. Um, and versions that are not even storm and, or, uh, sword and sorcery or, you know, even fantasy flavored. Um, getting together with some friends and collaboratively telling a story with the aid of dice is a lot of fun. Uh, and when you can do it with, you know, uh, beer and pretzels, that's even better. And if you have to do it over Zoom, then that's acceptable because, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes a, a, a pandemic hits, but also sometimes you just have friends who are on opposite sides of the country and yet you can still get together and, uh, you know, try your best to collaboratively tell some stories, uh, with some dice. Uh, I will also say that D&D has been a really helpful programming tool for me in my professional life. Hmm. Um, it like D and D is something like my teens are all playing it. Um, but it was really hard to get them to sit still in the before times to like have a program. Like they would tell me that they wanted to do it. Um, and then I would plan a program and no one would show up because sure. I think they were, they were just playing themselves. Like they really just needed access to materials. Um, but during the pandemic, it's been a really, um, a really successful way for me to like stay engaged with my teens, give them the platform to play with their friends and also like teach them how to use roll 20. Like mm -hmm. um, these tools that I have been using, they may not, they were not as familiar with because like they are mostly playing with kids that live in their neighborhood. And it wasn't until the pandemic hit that they were like, oh no, how do I play this thing that I'm used to playing in person? Yeah. How, how do I roll dice without like, B blaming Billy for cheating on all his roles. Right. So, um, D&D, like, yes, Pathfinder is my preferred game to play um, recreationally. D&D is a lot easier than Pathfinder. It has fewer rules, especially 5th edition. Yeah. Um, so that's what I've been playing with teens at the library um, and just teaching them how to use these tools uh, that I've been using to play with, like, my friend who lives in Seattle, um, and now we can use them to play in a socially distant and safe way here. Yeah. Number 91, uh, Mario Kart 64. Our third, <laughs> our third and 64 game. We are in our <laughs> mid-30s. <laughs> Listen, the thing about Mario Kart 64... It's a perfect um, game. It is a perfect game. I know that my husband, if he listened to this podcast, he would be arguing with me, with me right now because he considers Double Dash to be the peak of the Mario Kart world. That's a hard um, fight, and I don't know if I would disagree. Well, but... here's the thing. I don't always have a buddy to play with. Mm -hmm. And Mario 64 is a single player game. Um, it's also the only one I've ever really been good at. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked being good at it. Um, the Wii game is garbage. Um, 
that one, the graphics got like too. I had a very hard time seeing the road for the scenery. Mm, sure, sure. I'm not <laughs> sure if I've ever played the Wii version. It's not great. Yeah. All God. right. Uh, like, I, so I obviously I played Mario Kart 64 at friends' houses. I love the battle, the versus mode. Double Dash was the first one that I owned. So, like, my brother Mark and I played Double Dash all the time. Uh, so that's the one that has, like, the, the real nostalgia click. But also, Mario Kart 64 has an enormous amount of nostalgia click. I mean, it's also the first one. And like... No, no, there was an SNES version. Oh, yeah. well. I mean, it like, <laughs> 16, uh, but like, it's, it was the first one in 3D. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it, it's also just a great solid racing game. It is. It really <laughs> is. Uh, so my number 90 is um, one of the picks on this list, which is a pure Pete pick. Something that you may or may not know about me is that I love the album August and Everything by Counting Crows. It is one of the highest played albums on my iTunes. I have no idea why. Didn't like them back when they came out. Didn't listen to them at all. Got into them probably in college or shortly after college. And I think it's just a great album all the way through. Uh, so <laughs> number 90 on the list is August and Everything by The Counting Crows. I'm glad that you and I both put our I will listen to this 87 times on repeat don't ask me any questions uh, picks right next to each and other. And specifically our old <laughs> 90s uh, album of exactly that description. Yes, uh, for number 89 I have Gutter Flower by the Goo Goo Dolls. <laughs> yes! Which is my favorite. So the Goo Goo Dolls are maybe my... They're either my favorite band or my second favorite band, depending on how I'm feeling that mm. day. Um, I, love, I love Goo Goo Dolls. I love them. This is their best album. <laughs> Actually, that's so they they have other albums with higher highs. Mm -hmm. um, but this one, I think, is the most consistent from one to twelve. Like it, every it's the steadiest album. Yeah. Every track on here is great. Um it, start, it starts with Big Machine. It ends with Truth is a Whisper. Um, I've listened to this album so many times. Like, I can sing every single song on this album. <laughs> um, um, yeah, this yeah. is this is a good album. <laughs> well, uh, do, also... do, you have any thought, do you have any thoughts on uh, Counting Crows? Like, because they are right next to each other, and also they, like, live kind of in the same musical wheelhouse. But I could easily see, like, you especially being someone who's like, yeah, whatever, I don't care that much about Counting Crows. It's not that I don't care about them. They've just never been super high on my musical priority list. Right. I will tell I will tell all of our listeners right now, I only had three albums on my list. Like, music is just not... Right, and a uh, huge priority for me. Right. The count, like I have nothing against them. I think the Counting Crows song I'm most familiar with is the one that's on the Shrek album. Right, which is <laughs> um a, a perfectly fine song, and unfortunate that it's on the Shrek album. I mean, yeah, isn't that on the second? Isn't that the second Shrek? Yeah, the worst of the two. <gasps> All right, well Here. we don't we don't have any Shreks on this list, so let's just keep <laughs> let's keep her moving. <laughs> All right, we're gonna put a pin in that. All right, we'll we'll have a Shrek episode uh, down the line. <laughs> oh God, we're not going to. Please keep listening to us. Um, uh, so so number eighty-eight on our list is uh, a web comic. Um, I almost forgot to put it in, and then realized that I've been reading this web comic for probably like twelve years. Um, it's Dinosaur Comics by Ryan North. Ryan North has gone on to do many, many, many uh, bigger and better things since founding Dinosaur Comics back in the day. 
The gimmick of Dinosaur Comics, it's it's always the same six panels, uh, starring some clip art of a T-Rex and his friends, a uh, Dromitio Mimus and a Utah Raptor, uh, and a little house and a little person and a little car that he's stomping on. Um, but they all the changes between panels, er, between um, issues, comics, posts, uh, is the text. Uh, it's very funny. It's very philosophical, witty, clever. It's Ryan North. Um, if you have read any of his things or, or whatever, you kind of know what his speed is. Uh, and it's exactly my speed as well. Yeah, Dinosaur Comics is something that I enjoy whenever people send me ones to read. Right. It is not one that I've ever, like, read regularly. Sure. Um... Also, at this point, I know Ryan North more from other stuff. Right, like Which Squirrel is kind Girl of funny. And, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he did a good job of parlaying dinosaur comics into, like, a vast media empire of writing Marvel comics. Yeah. And um, Shakespeare choose-your-own-adventure novels. I also think he adapted Slaughterhouse-Five he into just, a graphic novel. He just did, and I haven't read it yet. Yeah, heard good things. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 87 is a book that I have selected called The Curse of the Wendigo by Rick Yancey. Uh, Rick Yancey wrote um, a quartet of young adult novels. Quintet, maybe? There's four or five of them. Um, they start with The Monstromologist, uh, and Curse of the Wendigo is number two. Um, these are some of the best young adult horror I have ever read. Um, they are about a boy who serves as a an assistant to a monstromologist who is a doctor that um hunts and studies monsters uh and frequently gets called in as a consultant um by law enforcement when they're like we think this weird thing is like up your alley um they take place in kind of gaslight era london mm -hmm. Um, and in the curse of the Wendigo, it, it is unfortunately, um, named after and riffing on the, uh, Native American folkloric Wendigo, which is unfortunate. Um, I'm, that is a, a phenomenon in horror that I'm trying to be more cognizant about, um, because Wendigo have like very real, um, like a very real, like tribal identification, religious identification. Yeah. Like they, they are a, um, a thing that exists in actual native American, um, practices. Like they, they mean something other than monster that is always hungry. Right. Uh, but in, in this particular book, that is the, the way that it is used. Um, and this one I really think is the best of this series of books. It is the most scary. It is, um, it has, kind of the deepest things to say about human nature. And I think mm. horror is kind of always at its best when it is commenting on human nature. Like that's what it is for. Um, and I just, I just really love these books and I wanted to have one of them be representative uh, for this list. I read these every year or every other year. They're some of my go-to fall books to revisit and they're oh. just very solid monster stories. Nice. Yeah. Uh, my number six, uh, 86, uh, number 86 <laughs> on our list, we're going to 86 it, um, is, <laughs> I've been thinking about that joke for like five 
items now cool. um, <laughs> uh, is a very short book of even shorter idea fragments called Einstein's Dreams by Alan Lightman. Um, this is one of those books that just exploded my brain when I read it and has sort of low-key influenced a lot of my thinking since then. The gimmick is it's Albert Einstein before he has formulated the idea of, um, like, space-time and relativity and all the rest of it. And so he's trying to conjure up or, it, like, it's dreams he's having is sort of like the frame story, if you can even call it that, of different ways that time might function in different universes. So there's one where there is a center point in the universe, and time moves slower the closer you get to that center point. And then from there, the author sort of, like, sketches out a very quick, like, usually no more than five or six pages, um society that might spring up around a place like that. So if you are living in that place where there's a center point where time moves slower the closest to it, uh, maybe when you're with a loved one or like a, a new new lovers just meeting each other for the first time, they'll want to move closer to that center point uh, because time will go slower for them and they will be able to spend more time together. Uh, but then when you're going through a rough patch in your life, maybe you want to move further away from that center point um, so that you can get through that, that faster. Um... And that's just one example. The entire book is just a collection of, uh, and this book is no more than maybe 120 pages, uh, but it's it's a dozen or, or two dozen possible worlds where time works different in each of these worlds and a very quick sketch of how that might impact human society. Um, it's absolutely a head trip, and I actually cannot recommend it highly enough for anyone who thinks that that premise sounds interesting. I'm mad because it sounds like Interstellar. <laughs> But, like, what if Interstellar... Was good? No, because, like, it's... Like, what if Interstellar was one 15-minute story that was combined with a dozen other 15-minute stories also about things like that, but just with different ramifications? If you I take mean, if you take all the fun parts of Interstellar, all the all the most interesting parts, uh, and condense it into fifteen minutes, yeah. I was gonna say that's a wild assumption that you're making there, but anyway, <laughs> no, this sounds this sounds fascinating, um, and I like that it's only 120 pages. Well, and like it, it's not it's not even 120 pages; it's six pages repeated, you know, a dozen times, because uh, it's just all the like each each one you could like just pick up, read one world, put it down, and go like, huh, that's wild, and then go do something else with your life. Uh, and that would take the same amount of time as doom scrolling during, you know, your lunch break. Fair enough. Uh, number 85, I am putting on uh, The Ultimate X-Men. So in 2001, Marvel launched an imprint called Marvel uh, called Ultimate Marvel, where they reimagined a whole bunch of their incredibly long-running series, um, sort of restarted them in the modern day. So this is where would... we get Brian Michael Bendis's ultimate Spider-Man. Yes. Um, and ultimate X-Men takes the initial five X-Men. So Jean Grey, Scott Summers, um, Hank McCoy, the guy who, I was saying, if you know the name Angel. of either Iceman or Angel, good on you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Iceman's Bobby Drake. Oh, Bobby Drake. Sure. Boom. Um, nice, but yeah. nice. And uh, uh, Cunning, Cunningham? Cunningworth? He's something like that. Now He's like I want to say like Wentworth. It's, it's, <laughs> it's somebody Cunningham's worth the third. 
yeah, he's rich. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it, it Warren it goes, Worthington the third. Yeah, knew it was something like that. Yeah, but yeah, so it it takes that initial like five traditional X Men goes back to their beginnings, um, but instead of being set in the sixties, it's set in the modern day. And this was really my start with the X-Men, who are now probably my favorite superhero team. Two questions. Um, yes. Was this Grant Morrison? Um, it was a bunch of people. Okay. Um, it was cre- So the initial run was Mark Millar and Joe Casada. Mm. Um, Brian oh. Michael Bendis wrote on it. Brian K. Vaughn wrote on it. Mar- Robert Kirkman wrote on it. Grant Morrison did new X-Men. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, uh, question two. Have you read Hox Pox? No, I have uh, no idea what that is. House of X, Powers of X. It's sort of the new-ish oh. X-Men arc. Well, why didn't you call it what it's actually called? Oh, because I've always read it. Like, <laughs> because when I see people talking about it on Twitter, they just call it Hox Pox. <laughs> um, I've read a couple issues. Okay. Um, but no, this was... this. This made um this is not the first comic reboot that will show up on my list. Um I'm a big fan of them because they provide an entry point to people who, like me at 14, um had just seen like the first X-Men movie and was looking for a way to like get into these stories. Um and this series said you don't need to know 50 solid years of lore. Mm-hmm. Like you can just start here. Um and the stories were great, the way that they imagined like the way that they made these characters more relatable was really great. Uh, Jean Grey actually gets to bone uh, Wolverine, hey, <laughs> which was great. <laughs> well, and then also like Hank McCoy and Aurora Monroe had a super cute relationship. So like it, it really is an alternate universe that I think took very great, very good advantage of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually Nightcrawler showed up and he's my favorite X-Man. So, you know, like, how bad can it be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my, uh, number 84 on the list, uh, we're back to classic rock for me. Uh, all my classic rock is in the this later era because I'm like, I need to represent classic rock. It is a formative thing for my pop culture experience. Um, Martha has three albums. I have, I was definitely the case where it's like, I could have 100 albums, so I need to like figure out what I'm doing here. Um, but... Fleetwood Mac's Rumors is another one of those albums where it is like, oh, this isn't a greatest hits because every track on this is a solid gold banger. Um, it's a super popular album now. You've got Cranberry Juice Longboarder Guy uh, longboarding to a song from it. Um, I don't know. I feel like Fleetwood Mac is having a bit of a resurgence right now with, I can't tell if it's the youths or the my demographic. Uh, regardless, people too young to have actually like been alive when Fleetwood Mac was was happening. Um, but yeah, Rumors is just that classic, perfect 70s rock album. The What I'm about to say is going to make you very, very no, mad. And no, I'm so excited about no! it. No! <laughs> um, all of my relationship with this album comes from the episode of Glee where they covered all of it. <laughs> oh, that's fine. I thought you were going to say that you didn't like it. Oh, no. I don't know that I've ever heard the originals. Oh, I would highly recommend you do so. Yeah. <laughs> well, then I take I take back my uh, ridiculous no, because what you I, just said was absurd, but not, you know, <laughs> uh, appalling. <laughs> I honestly thought I was going to make you mad. <laughs> 
Uh, number 83, Gone in 60 Seconds, the Heck 2001 yeah. masterpiece starring Nicolas Cage. That we both watched in uh, shop class in high school. Yes, I love this movie. It's my favorite Nicolas Cage oh, movie. And Angelina Jolie, and more importantly, Angelina Jolie's hair plugs. Oh my god, Angelina Jolie, Will Patton is in this movie, Giovanni Ribisi is in this movie, Scott Can is in this oh, movie, I'm weirdly. adding this movie to my watch list. Delroy Lindo. Baby Delroy Timothy. Lindo is in that movie? By yeah, the way, he was, he can we talk about how he was robbed from the Oscars this year? I haven't watched The Five Bloods yet, so I can't comment, um, but I have heard that. I have watched it, and I can say he was robbed. Um, Chai McBride, Robert Duvall, Christopher Eccleston before he played Doctor yes! Who. Yes, this movie is incredible. Um, it's also, also insane. It, oh yeah, no, it's it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's um, Nick it, Cage at his Nick Cageiest. It's not really though. I was just about to say it's a remarkably restrained performance from Nick Cage. Hmm. In in the context of Nick Cage performances. What is, I mean... But like any other actor, you'd be like, he's chewing all the scenery. But like with Nick Cage, it's like, we've seen him be far more, like face off, he is chewing all of the scenery. Right, but he's not playing a crazy person in Gone in 60 Seconds. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which in and of itself makes this a restrained <laughs> Nicolas Cage performance. That's fair. Uh, well, well, number 82, um, I, uh, actually, Martha, I have no idea if you know this about me. I definitely like to, uh, get drunk and watch Shakespeare adaptations. Um, I did not know that, but that's <laughs> delightful. Uh, I, I like to, yeah, like, I like to get drunk and watch Shakespeare adaptations. I like to, uh, enjoy substances I can procure in Illinois and watch Shakespeare adaptations. Um, the language of Shakespeare just, like, rolls over me, and I'm like, this is incredible. Um... And so I wanted to have a Shakespeare adaptation on this list. And I went with 2015's Macbeth. Uh, this is directed by Justin Kurtzel and stars um, Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard uh, as Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Um, two years later, the same director went on to make Assassin's Creed with these same people. And that's a weird thing that we don't have time to get into right now because that's just weird um insane also we definitely did this uh as homework on the show once yes i definitely did assign this because i love this movie i think it's visually innovative macbeth is one of my favorite shakespeare's um it was between this and the hollow crown which is a long bbc adaptation of uh the henriad uh I, it's amazing and i would highly recommend it but i think this one hits my my vibe and my speed a little bit more um i saw it in theaters and just the visuals that kurtzell is doing for like warfare and then just general life in the scottish highlands in the year 1100 is just incredible um yeah and you know get some shakespeare get some culture i was gonna say go listen to our episode on it we're moving on yeah um number 81 warhammer 40k conquest uh was a living card game produced by fantasy flight games that is set in the games workshop warhammer 40k universe um what is a living I... card game a living card game, unlike a collectible card game, is a game where all of the cards in a set are released equitably, so you don't mm. have to rely on random pack drops like you do for, say, Magic. That's nice. Yes, you have access. As long as the sets are in print, every player has access to the same resources all of the time. That's cool. Yes. Um, so I am a big game player, um, and I 
chose this because um, in addition to it being a 40K property, which is a universe that I quite enjoy um, and just play a lot in with my husband and other people, this was the the first and really only game that I ever got comfortable playing in like a tournament setting. Mm. Um, I don't play a lot of things competitively because I'm bad at them and I don't like losing to strangers. Um, but because conquest was pretty egalitarian about like everybody had the same resources, it was just how you put them together. Mm -hmm. Um, that made the difference. I was actually not bad at this game, um, which meant that I, uh, didn't have to worry that I was going to lose every <laughs> single time. Also, the community that we were playing with was really chill. Um, now, the only other game that I've really gotten into playing competitively was also an F another Fantasy Flight game, um, but set in the Star Wars universe, uh, which is also dead. This one, Conquest, unfortunately, is no longer uh, in production. Mm. Um. But yeah, it was great. You got to pick your faction. You got to pick your war leader. You got to build your army from available units. It had a really um, dynamic like resource management factor. Um, it was just a really well-designed game. Uh, and I will always be sad that it did not uh, last longer. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, blood for the blood god. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, my number 80 is The Wire. Uh, it's an HBO show. Many people think it's the best show of all time. It's uh, cops and, um, in season one, drug dealers, uh, and then various other groups. Uh, we got unions. We got teachers. We got the, the journalist industry in Baltimore in the early aughts. Um, I don't know. If you're listening to this podcast, you like pop culture. You have heard people, you have heard a lot of white men of approximately my age and older tell you that The Wire is the greatest show of all time and that it's amazing. Um, and I think it's really good. I've never watched it. Yeah, that's, I mean, like, it is also, it is also a total, like, your miles may vary. Uh, we watched it back, like, like I, I had a group of friends where we were, like, when we were all teaching who watched it together and it was a challenging watch. <laughs> uh, but also, like, at the end of the day, everyone's like, we're glad we watched that, and we never need to watch it again. Um, I, meanwhile, have seen it, like, four times. <laughs> yeah, I just, I get very tired with shows that are, like, very serious and gritty, and... Yeah. I don't I, know. I, yeah. But I've, I, I mean, I've heard very good things about it. It just never really seemed like my deal. It like I'm I'm torn here because I'm like it's a great show. It's also the year 2021. We don't need to be rehashing the same shows. And this, I'm like, oh geez, this show aired like the first season. There's lots of jokes about like how the FBI is taking all its money away from uh, uh, drug enforcement and putting it in counterterrorism because it's right after 9/11. Um, like this show probably came out in 2003, 2004, which means we're going on. It's over 15 years old now. So. Adding new things to the canon is good. Mm -hmm. uh, number 79, I have selected Artemis Fowl by Yoin Colfer. I assume uh, you mean the recent Disney Plus movie. I do. <laughs> um, I do not, although I did not hate that movie as mm. much as a lot of people did. I did not see it. Uh, I'm not surprised. Yeah. But yeah, Artemis Fowl is a series of fantasy novels about the titular Artemis Fowl, who is a 12-year-old super genius who 
uh, in the first book as a way to recoup his family's fortune, which his father lost in some kind of shady, uh, like, back dealings. Um, it, it, because it's a children's series, you never really <laughs> are explicitly told. It's, but it's not gambling, wink. <laughs> No, but you you are led to you are led to believe that he got in bad with the wrong people, which led to his disappearance um, and also the loss of the family fortune. So, as a way to recoup his family's losses and also um, get the resources to continue looking for his father, who Artemis is convinced is not dead, he devises a plan to capture and ransom a fairy, who through years of like study and rumors and research he has decided are real and turns out they are uh, so he sets a trap captures a fairy uh the commander holly short uh and devises a plan by which he will ransom her back to her people uh one of the clever things that Ar the series artemis fowl does is it blends magic and technology really really seamlessly mm -hmm. so like the magical creatures don't just have magic. They have really complex forms of technology that kind of run on magic. Uh, and just getting to see those different tools come out to play is really cool. Um, and also as the series goes on, Holly and Artemis go from being uh, nemeses and like opponents to working together in future books. So like in future stories, the, the fairies run into problems that they're like, well, Artemis Fowl is the smartest person that we know. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, it does a really good job of turning these people into allies so that they can continue to exist in books together. I, I read this book back when it came out, which I was probably in middle school or something. I remember enjoying it. Haven't thought about it since. Um, but I do recall that the, the dwarves, I think, eat dirt. Uh, and are excellent tunnelers, and I always thought that was a very clever, clever move. Um, and they do go into, I believe, the biological detail of what happens if you eat a bunch of dirt. Oh, yeah. And no, how do you dwarves, deal with that? <laughs> dwarves tunnel through the earth by eating it and having it pass through the other end yes. so that they are effectively jet-powered by farts. Yes. <laughs> um, these books are for 12-year-olds, uh, but I've always been a little bit bummed that this first one came out around the same time as the first Harry Potter and I think was mm. pretty much entirely overshadowed by it at the time um, because I, I think that they are very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, my number, uh, number 78 on the list, uh, we're back to video games, we're back to nostalgic video games. Uh, this is the GameCube game Super Smash Bros. Melee. Um, I could have put basically any Smash Brothers on here. I love that game. I don't play them almost at all uh, anymore, which is very sad. But um, between the ages of, I don't know, whenever the N64 came out and uh, when I graduated college... I was always playing Smash Bros. It was a great way to just spend some time with some friends. Uh, I, I played the most recent one on Switch just by myself. It's fun, but it's not as fun as, uh, you know, getting together with some friends in the same room and playing a fun... Uh, smashing all your toys together. Um, also, I played this a lot with various cousins during uh, family, like, Christmas gatherings and whatnot, so... Uh, just a, a really lovely way to spend a bunch of time together with some... Uh, some friends i mean you probably did if you were playing this if you were playing the switch version by yourself like 
this is smash brothers is not a solo game pete well the, like uh, um the switch version and i think this is true with all the others uh has a solo arc because sure. like that's how you unlock all the stuff sure but also i would argue that if you only played it by yourself you were not actually getting the full smash brothers experience oh that's true like i've i've played the switch version with people like a handful of times um <laughs> a friend of mine brought it to a uh, a local bar that has unfortunately simply uh, since closed down and was like hey can we hook this up to the tv and they're like yeah sure we don't care uh, so <laughs> nice. uh so we, we played it at a bar once yeah i've never super been a smash brothers person i in general don't play a lot of games that kind of rely on a multiplayer experience i they just i i've never had like people to play games with mm -hmm. so i i've just kind of when you developed you've... very solo gaming kind of in inclinations you've also mentioned on this podcast that like you like playing video games and don't consider yourself good at them so i can see that a multiplayer competitive game would be just frustrating if you're playing with someone who's just going to like beat you nine times out of ten yeah i will say the times that i have played smash brothers with other people um as long as i can play with a full complement of four people sure um yeah it's when it's just like me and bill that i get my socks rocked off and it's yeah. like well you won again <laughs> great that was a fun 45 <laughs> seconds <laughs> uh number 77 i'm just now realizing how many of the artifacts i have chosen are from like the early aughts uh 2000s remember the titans great film this is the perfect sports movie <laughs> um it is stars denzel washington it stars will Patton again who is just one of my favorite actors uh it is about a high school that is integrating in the 60s um everybody is in this movie including a baby dr turk from scrubs and a baby ryan gosling i was gonna say ryan, ryan gosling is the one i know i didn't realize turk was in this yep um but yeah, it's it's a very um, feel good movie about people realizing that racism is bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is also a football movie, and I only care about football when it is in inspirational sports media. I've I've now watched uh, the first season of Remember the uh, uh, not Remember the Titans. Um, <laughs> Friday Night Friday Lights. Night Lights. Thank you. Um, yes. Yeah, talk about inspirational feel good football. Yeah, um, but anyway, it's a perfect sports movie. Um, it was for a long time our go-to Thanksgiving movie. Oh, fun! In my house, fun. Um, another movie that I've added to my movie watch list. I think at this point I've taken every movie you have on your list and added to my movie watch list because I'm like, yeah, that's a great movie. And I'm very persuasive. <laughs> uh, we are going to take a quick break right now, and when we come back, we're going to keep talking about our favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> And we are back. Hopefully we haven't lost you. Hopefully you're enjoying our fun conversation <laughs> about stuff we really like. 
Uh, and maybe you're writing some things to your own list of uh, media to consume. Or there, or everybody is just getting really mad at us because the stuff we're picking is wild. <laughs> Deeply esoteric and like us. Yeah. I don't know. We have a lot of Venn diagram overlaps on these things, so I feel like there might be some others. Um, so jumping right back in. Number 76. I needed a Coen Brothers on this list. I thought long and hard. Fargo is the obvious choice. It's a great film. Big Lebowski, another great film. I went instead with Burn After Reading, a movie that I unabashedly love. Um, You're wrong. I mean, if you were going to pick, if you were going to pick a Coen Brothers movie, I think it is actually Buckwild that this is the one that you picked. <laughs> the thing is, like, I-, I love Fargo and all the rest of it, but like, I love Burn After Reading. Um, and also, I get to just tell everyone else, hey, if you haven't seen Burn After Reading in a while. Go watch it. It's amazing. Um, or don't. There's, watch Fargo instead. Fargo is also <laughs> incredible. Um, there's no point describing the plot. It's way too convoluted, and that's kind of the point. Um, but it is an, a stacked all-star cast, and it's a Coen Brothers movie, so you'll probably like it. Uh, I get the vibes, though, that you didn't like it? No, I thought it was boring and stupid. Oh, dang. Like, not a fan. Whoa, okay. <laughs> well, uh, if you're like Martha and don't like it, uh, go watch Fargo instead. That would that was going to be my other Coen Brother pick. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. This one really just didn't do it for me. Um, Coen Brothers in general are very hit or miss for me, I think. Um, And I, I mean, like Fargo is one of the best movies ever made. And this one was certainly a movie that I watched. I know you recently Uh watched Big Lebowski for the first time. Yeah. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs in the middle. I was going to say it was fine. I wasn't sad that I watched it. Uh, I laughed out loud a couple of times. I was actually, I was very afraid I was going to hate it, and mm-hmm. I didn't. So that, I thought, was a win nice. for me. Nice. Uh, number 75, the 2001 Toonami adapted, or Toonami imported anime, Gundam Wing. <laughs> um, the, the, was this the <laughs> genesis of your love of uh, Jaeger, Jaeger media? Like possibly, gi- Giant robots? It is. It was definitely the first mecha anime that I watched. It was um, like the second anime that I got very, very into after mm. Sailor Moon. Mm. Um, it was on Cartoon Network's Toonami. Uh, it aired after school. I had like three VHS tapes that I taped episodes on so that I could watch them. <laughs> um, I have been rewatching it recently and it holds up, I think, pretty well for something made in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it's actually a really weird choice for like where i watched it like for tsunami yeah because like it has mecha battles and like cute anime boys piloting big robots but it is also mostly about politics and like negotiations between colonies and the earth Hmm. and has a lot of like pacifism idealism ideals poorly expressed because the episodes are only 25 minutes long (laughs) and they're being translated Um, anyway but yeah um gundam wing was also like my big entry point into fandom Hmm. um so like joining like writing and reading fan fiction uh hanging out on online web rings 
Um, like Gundam Wing was the first thing that I loved enough to be like, I want to be experiencing this in all forms at all times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, hook it into my veins. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah, I've I've been thinking about rewatching um, Cowboy Bebop, and I'm a little bit nervous because I like that's a pure like nostalgically I love that anime, and I don't oh, know shoot. if I want to watch it. No, you should. It's still great. It still um, holds up. Okay. Should have should have been on this list. <laughs> Marin was like, you should put Cowboy Bebop on that list. You like you haven't seen it in a while, but you love it. I'm like, I do love it. And it it was like my number fifty two, you know. No, it's still it's still great. Okay, that's refreshing to hear, and I I will probably give it a whirl then. Uh number seventy four is The Years of Rice and Salt by Kim Stanley Robinson. This is a wild alternative fiction with the premise that um the Black Death killed ninety-nine percent of Europe rather than one third of Europe. Uh and then we advance forward through time from there in a series of not vignettes, but like sections, right? So like the book has nine sections or whatever. Um as we slowly work our way through history up until the present and then slightly past the present in a world where Europe was just fully decimated, never became anything, and Islam uh, basically just took over uh, Europe's geographic landmass because there were no people there. Um, it also deals with the idea of the bardo, uh, Tibetan uh, Buddhist idea of a place that your spirit goes after you die to sort of wait for reincarnation. Um, and the linking factor between all of the various sections of the book is it's the same spirit the same spirits being reincarnated in each section um with the same like the the gimmick is they like the same person always has the same letter of their first name same first letter of their first name so it's like bob and then he gets reincarnated as bill and then he gets reincarnated as uh Bilal and and so on um and then you have interstitials of them all hanging out together in the bardo in between their reincarnations. Um, it plays with so many ideas that I'm fascinated with. It's like Kim Stanley Robinson took a picture of my brain of all the things I like and I'm fascinated by and then wrote a book about it. Um, and it also triggered a lot of like wild thoughts in my mind. So, Haven't read it. Sounds like my jam. Going on my to-read list. Great. <laughs> Uh, number 73, I have the Elf Quest comic series by Wendy and Richard Peeney. Uh, this is another one of those very formative pieces of media uh, for me, but also like critically acclaimed. Um, yeah. <laughs> long running, long running comic series. Um, Elf Quest was a fantasy uh, series that ran from 1978 until like 2018. Um so it's epic in scope. It's about very pretty elves, many of whom ride wolves, which I found very appealing. <laughs> um, and it just has like a really deep, rich history and world building, like so much incredible detail that I just soaked up like a sponge um, growing this, up. This has like wild barbarian elves, right? Sort of. So one of the cool things about it is that you are introduced to the wolf riders, which are um, a group of elves that live in the woods and ride wolves and have like a weird familial bond with them. But the more that the world opens up, like they're forced to leave their home and then you get to meet other groups of elves that landed on in different places on mm. this planet that they all live in and evolved very very differently kind of based on their circumstances so like you have the the 
tribe that lives in the desert and the tribe that landed on a mountain um, and seeing the cultural differences and how they like interact with each other um, was one of the very deeply appealing things to me about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Also it had, when I was like, 12 to 14 (laughs) it's a little Um, r-rated isn't it it's a little r-rated but it's all (laughs) like it's very sexy Mm -hmm. um the elves are very free love type creatures (laughs) um but it's all very like nice like it's all very kind of pure expression of like familial and romantic love Mm -hmm. um it was one of the first encounters that I had with like polyamor, like casual polyamory sure. in fiction. Um, but most of the like when when it deals with unhealthy relationship depictions, it makes sure that you, the reader, know that it's unhealthy. Sure. Um, like the elves might be free love types, and that's fine and good. But then sometimes there's like bad and unhealthy things, and that's different from and right. called out specifically in elf culture. Yeah. So like consent uh consent is a Mm -hmm. huge deal especially since uh, many of them can like read each other's minds so like the consent factor for that kind is a big deal there's a lot of again uh it's a piece of media that introduced a lot of very complex ideas to preteen and teenager me Mm -hmm. but wrapped in a very pretty package yeah Um, sure sure very easily consumable um yeah Elf Quest is one where I'm like, I absolutely know the visuals language of it, and I've never actually read any of it. Uh, but I could I could easily point out, like, which of these is the Elf Quest character? I'm like, that one, because I know what the oh, yeah. art looks like. It's very distinctive. Also, Elf Quest ran long enough that it was published under, like, Yeah, it can drink, every... right? What? It can drink, legally, right? Well, yes, and also, <laughs> it has been published under Marvel, DC, and also Dark Horse. Oh my god, So, Whoa. yes. Whoa. Like it has bounced around to many places. <laughs> Wild. Uh, number seventy-two um, is uh, the Neil Stevenson choice on this list. I went very intentional here, um, as we talked about earlier. I think Snow Crash is Stevenson's best, and Cryptonomicon is the you is many people's first intro to him. I went with Anathem, which is arguably his densest, most esoteric weirdest one uh martha i need you to bolt your eyes in their sockets because otherwise they will roll so hard as i try to explain the premise that they will fall out listen Um, everything that you've said is already like well that makes sense because this is pete talking uh uh-huh sure uh so anathem is about a uh it's on another world um it is about a abbey of mathematician monks who uh-huh uh-huh um who live in an abbey where they uh, where there are different sects of them uh who can leave the abbey either every one year the oneers every 10 years the tenors every 100 years the hundreds uh and then every thousand years the millennials uh, the thousanders uh you might ask how can they live so long the answer is do they even what's even happening um the world outside the abbey goes through rises and falls and rises and falls but life inside the abbey is very static um this is uh, neil stevenson is famous for having big old grandiose works of sci-fi or fantasy where he's also dealing with crazy philosophical notions um cryptonomicon is both a rollicking adventure book and also a treatise on cryptography 
This is a book about the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics and a philosophical debate between platonic realism and nominalism, a kind of philosophy that hasn't really existed since the Middle Ages. Uh, but basically it's the idea of um, platonic realists say, is there a universal or an abstract idea that is like projecting down onto us and we get the lesser versions? Or the nominalists who say, no, everything that we see is just what it is and there's no platonic ideal. Um... <laughs> everything I'm saying is very much up nobody's alley, but apparently me and Neil Stevenson. Uh <laughs> I was going to say, I have died. I'm deceased. Uh, but it, it, like, again, it is his weirdest book, his least accessible book, but the fact that he's having these wild philosophical arguments in a fictional world that has a bunch of, like, fictional terminology that he introduces you to almost makes the philosophy more palatable. Because, like, instead of talking about, like, oh, the platonic ideal or whatever, uh, he's talking about, you know, uh, Fra Erasmus in the consent of Saint Edhar, blah, 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 um, which are all just made up things from this book. Uh, and you're just like, sure, it's made up things from this book. Um, eventually, spoilers, uh, a spaceship from a another quantum universe appears. <laughs> um, and they deal with that. Uh, it's wild. I think you would hate it. Uh, but it, I'm glad that you and Neil Stevenson have each other. Yes, it exploded a lot of ideas in my brain when I read it. So I'm I'm going to push this one as my number 72. Sounds good. Number 71 is Fire Emblem Three Houses. Um, That's the one available now on the Switch? Yes, that's, it's that's, the one that I've talked at yes, length that's, <laughs> about on this podcast. That, that, that's your uh, Harry Potter, the Fire Emblem, Emblem game? I have... I have 300 hours in this game. We can move on. <laughs> oh, great. It, um, is my no it is my number three most played Switch game after Animal Crossing and Stardew Valley. <laughs> That's an insane amount of hours to spend. <laughs> Listen, oh, right. moving right no, along. Right, yeah, moving along. Um, my number 70 is a board game. Uh, it's a game called Seven Wonders. Uh, it's up to seven people, which is great. Um, and it's also right up my alley because you get to pick one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Yes, I want to play as uh, the statue of Artemis at Ephesus. It has the best resources for my particular build style. Um, it's... This is a game that I've liked a lot. I've been playing it for about 10 years now when a friend first sort of found it. It won the Spiel de Jahr, the German board game, uh, Game of the Year Award back in like 2011. Um, so a friend found it then and was like, here, let's try this game. We all enjoyed it. We've been playing it in person for years. But during lockdown, during pandemic, my college buddies and I got back into like regular communication. So we have a weekly gaming night session on the calendar. And more often than not, we're playing Seven Wonders. Uh, it's quick. Uh, it's up to seven people. We can be chatting while it's hat while we're playing it, and we don't have to think that hard at this point. Um, and it's really kind of gotten like it's gotten me and the rest of my college buddies back together. Uh, also, like entirely because of the, of the lockdown, uh, and then it's carried us through to this. So it was a great game before, and a great game during uh quarantine time uh we play it on board game arena and i can not recommend that highly enough in terms of user interface for this particular game um it takes a lot of the background nitty-gritty of playing an in-person resource building game uh and just streamlining it really quickly yeah super fun i like it a lot mm -hmm. um number 69 nice, nice. 
Uh, I have selected the 2008 post-apocalyptic comic series called Freak Angels, written by Warren Ellis and art by Paul Duffield. Uh, This series was originally published online uh, as a webcomic and then eventually uh, published as a in trades. I don't believe it's in in print anymore. Hmm. Um, It is... Like I said, it's post-apocalyptic. It's kind of steampunky. It's about a group of um, it's about a group of twelve. They are in their like early twenties uh, when the series starts. Um, they are all pale with purple hair, um, and as the series goes on, you find out that they and their psychic powers are actually the cause of the. Uh, fact that the world is now flooded and kind of over and it is sort of about them growing up realizing what they did and then fixing it mm-hmm. um, this has been on my mind a lot um, because it was one of the first comic series that I read from beginning to end um, got deeply into the different characters um, and recently the writer Warren Ellis has been Uh, involved in a lot of very ugly accusations. I don't think Warren Ellis is a good guy, Um, but this particular work I found very affecting. Um, The art is very good. The characters are all great. Uh, It is one of the few post-apocalyptic stories that doesn't like set my teeth on edge. Mm. Um, And it's an, as a, as an adult in my early thirties now, I also kind of deeply appreciate the, um, message of it that you can do something so bad that it might feel like it ended the world um but you always have the chance you can always make the choice to try and make it right mm-hmm. um as i said off air i have not thought about this in 12 years or so and i'm absolutely going to go back and read all of it now uh because i i was reading it with you you might have even introduce this to me i don't i don't remember um but I have strong memories of sitting in like a dorm room in college and reading, like waiting for the next update. Yeah. It was also one of the first, um, like first web comics that I read. Mm-hmm. So it sort of introduced me to this idea of web comics, like this, this medium that publishes one day, like one page a day. It was also or... like far and above quality wise, what every other web comic was doing at the time. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it was a, like Warren Ellis was an established comic writer when, when he was putting this out on the web. Yeah, I, I would argue that that is no longer true. Yes, 100% agree. Um, but it certainly was one of the first um, the first webcomics to kind of... Because basically what you're looking at is what could have been a like monthly floppy, just mm-hmm. broken down page by page. Yeah. All right, uh, number 68 is uh, everybody's favorite comfort food of a TV show or a Netflix show, uh, The Great British Baking Show. I don't know. We love it. We all we all love the Great British Baking Show. We get to watch a bunch of nice British people make some tasty things, and then some other British people will critique it. It's it's it is the purest distillation of comfort food I can think of. Um, also, I have a very distinct memory of watching the very first episode of this in uh, my now in laws uh, uh, house in far north Minnesota over Thanksgiving. So I've been uh, there's a little fun nostalgia bit here too. Um, Introduced me to baking. I got into baking because of the show and even just like pushing my kitchen skills a little bit further in general uh, because of this show. 
I started watching it when I was um, away for the weekend at a conference. So I was uh, away from my husband, away from my family. I was at a professional conference where I didn't know anybody. Uh, it was the last night of a four-day conference, so mm. I was exhausted. Um, instead of trying to go out for dinner with anybody, I bought a sandwich from Starbucks. I went to my hotel room. I turned on the TV, and Great British Bake Off was on. And it made me feel comforted while mm -hmm. I was kind of like mentally tapped out and lonely and um, just had kind of had enough yeah. for the weekend. Yeah. Um, also, I remember feeling very put out that nobody told me that one of the contestants <laughs> on the first season that I watched was named Martha and was also the best. <laughs> I was she was like, like a I, little 17 year old girl trying her she hardest. Was, and she was so good. She and went I very just, far want very good things for her <laughs> uh number 67 the little mermaid it's my favorite traditionally animated disney movie really yes hmm. um it is about a girl who knows what she wants does what she needs to do to get it <laughs> um ariel rules she is resourceful she like i said she knows what she wants she goes after it uh, um, I, I already know that you do not listen to the podcast Blank Check because on our sister show, Love Ya, uh, Marin has asked you if you listen to Blank Check numerous times uh, and you say no. That's um, correct. They recently have an episode about Little Mermaid. I'd recommend you listen to it. They okay. like it. They are pro smooching. So yeah, they are. It rules. They, yeah. Um, also, I just want to point out one of the biggest criticisms levied against the Little Mermaid is that Ariel is 16. How does she know that she wants to change her entire life for the sky? And I would argue she's not. She's changing her entire life to be a human, which is something that we establish that she has loved and wanted her entire life. <laughs> Eric is just a very cute bonus. I'd also say that uh, she's 16. Of course she wants to change her entire life for a guy or for literally anything. She's 16. That's a choice a 16-year-old would absolutely make. Uh, all right. Uh, number 66. You love it. I love it. It's hipster cred all over the world in the aeroplane over the sea by Neutromilk Hotel. Uh, this album came out in 1999, but I guarantee there is some, I don't know, I'm going to go junior in high school who's just discovering it right now for the first time and is going to be the coolest kid for a month and a half in his high school <laughs> class. Um, uh, because it's that kind of album, right? So, like, Martha, I know you like this album, or at least you I like do. songs from it. I was actually going to say, um, this album has the only song I've ever considered getting a lyric tattooed on my body from. Was that Ghost? No. Okay. It's King of Carrot Flowers. Mm, part one. Yes. Yes. Mm. Well, every line in that is it a banger, is, so. Yes, it is. This is the room one afternoon I knew I could love you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I didn't properly get into this in college, but I have strong memories of sitting in a um, philosophy class in high school, listening to a couple friends of mine uh, a couple rows back talking about this album and being like, wait, what is the name of that band? That's insane. No band is called Neutral Milk Hotel. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's such a stupid band name. Because it took I mean, me a while to get cool in terms of music. <laughs> uh, but they're just like, yeah, it's an Anne Frank album. I'm like, what? Like, I did not break into the conversation where I'm like, what is even going on in music these days? Uh, and that was seven-ish years after the album came out. So I can only hope that the same conversations are happening still. Also, the song Ghost makes me cry. Yes. 
That seems, and like I knew Ghost was your number one song off this. Uh, it is. So <laughs> so I thought that would be where you got the uh, the tattoo from. Uh, for, yeah, for Ghost, it would have to be the whole song. Right. Like, well, my back is currently open, <laughs> so get to it. <laughs> number 65, the 2013 Guillermo del Toro giant robot opus Pacific Rim. It's so good. It is. It is a very pure distillation of the monsters fighting giant robots genre. Uh, and also, one of the things that I love that I feel is very underrated about Pacific Rim is that it is not about people messing up. It is mm. about people coming together. Mm -hmm. Like, the whole message of Pacific Rim is what if the way we saved the world was the friends we made along the way? <laughs> and also, like, we didn't break the world. We The, the, the challenges we're facing just got harder and harder. So we yeah, had to like up our own game to confront it. It's kind of it like there's kind of an environmentalism message in it, but mostly it's like it's about being really good friends with it's about being in sync with people and what it means to like work collaboratively with a team. Yeah. Um I will say that one of the parts of this movie and the reason that it is not ranked higher for me i was is... wondering at its location given so given i know your i love, of it. love this movie very very deeply um it tries very hard to recreate the bill pullman independence day speech i don't think idris elba he does he does everything he can for that speech and i don't think it quite gets there mm -hmm. um and also charlie hunnam is the least interesting person in this movie yes uh um, I, I recently rewatched this movie and my a number one critique is uh, charlie hunnam huh there's a the current twitter meme right now is what movie would you watch a four-hour recut of mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because of the snyder thing and my answer is unequivocally Pacific Rim. I would watch four hours as long as that four hours was more of the side characters that we get not nearly enough of. Charlie from It's Always Sunny hanging out with Ron Perlman and uh, also uh, his uh, boyfriend. Uh, who, science boyfriend? Science yes. boyfriend, yep. Um, is just like more of that directly into my veins, please. I would watch four hours just about the Chinese triplets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the problem is like this movie came out when they tried to make Charlie Hunnam a thing. And it's like Charlie Hunnam is not a leading like. Del Toro must really like him, though, because he also is in Crimson Peak in a very hmm. strange role for him. Hmm. Um, I don't know. He's fine. Like, I find him inoffensive. Yeah, he's just like the least interesting part of the movie. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, so number 64 is the 1982, um, Ridley Scott film Blade Runner. I actually strongly considered having Blade Runner 49 take my Blade Runner slot, because I'm like, I need a Blade Runner slot. Um, and I went back and forth and back and forth. I love 2049, but I did end up with Blade Runner. Um, it's great sci-fi. Uh, many people might have many problems with it. There are, in fact, some problems with this movie. Uh, this is one of those where I'm watching it with the rosiest color glasses, and that's fine. The soundtrack alone bumps it onto my list, uh, and all the wild ideas they're playing with, um, I don't know, like, you've probably seen a cut of Blade Runner at some time in your life. If not, 
give it a whirl. You might hate it, but you might really vibe with it. And I happen to really vibe with it. It's fine. Yeah. So this was one where I felt like the ideas in it eclipsed the execution. Um, did you see 49, 2049? I did. I did. Did you like um, that better or worse or equally? I thought it was trying to cash an emotional check that this movie did not write. Hmm. Hmm. Um, 2049 hinges on an emotional resonance that I did not think existed in this movie. Hmm. That's fair. I, I might have been so swept up in the big capital B, capital I, big ideas of 2049. Well, and the visuals are very good. The visuals, but also just like the wildness of the ideas and like Jared Leto's character is fascinating and insane. Uh, but um, also I had to watch Jared Leto. Right. I know that would be a big downside for you. Um, but it, like the, the, the ideas were enough that it pushed me past whatever emotional gaps there were. Uh, but that's me, so. Yeah, I agree. Um, again, I, in in twenty forty nine, I think I I also think that the ideas it has are more interesting and more ambitious than the actual execution of the movie. Mm. Um, mostly it just it asks me to believe that Harrison Ford and the actress whose name I can't remember, but Sean who is yeah. 2049 asks me to believe that they were so in love that their love changed the world. And that is simply not in evidence in the first Blade Runner movie. Yeah, the most problematic part of the first Blade Runner movie is the scene where he's quote unquote seducing Sean Young and you watch it now and you're just like, this is borderline rape. It's very, the first one is too existential for the second one to be as emotive as it is. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Yeah, but anyway. <laughs> I I needed um, a Blade Runner on this list, so we're doing a Blade Runner on this list. I'm happy for you. Uh, number 63, I have The World Ends With You, which is a 2007, um, initially Nintendo DS game. It just hmm. recently, uh, in the last couple of years, came out as a Switch port, um, which I played and very much enjoyed. But one of the reasons this game is on the list is because it took the best advantage of the of the DS dual screens mm. as any video game that I played on the DS. So the DS, if you are not familiar, had it's um, it was a Nintendo handheld console that had the flip up screen, and then the bottom half of the console had a touch screen. And the world ends with you is a um, Square Enix game that takes place in an alternate reality version of um, the Shibuya in Tokyo. But the combat system in this game utilized both the upper screen and the lower screen. So you could you control the character on the upper screen while also controlling a character on the lower screen with either mm. your finger or the stylus. Mm. Uh, so there was like a lot of dual combat that because the switch doesn't have that capabilities, it can't replicate, um, which is a bummer, but the art is great. The music slaps. Um, it is, you play a character named Neku who wakes up in the uh, crosswalk of the Shibuya shopping district and realizes that no one around him can see or hear him. Uh, and is then told by a couple of characters uh, that are called that are reapers that he has died. 
and that in order to get a second chance at living has to participate in a game that will take seven days. And if he wins, he gets to live again. But if he dies, he gets erased forever. Um, so the game takes place over the course of multiple seven-day chunks as you learn more about this world. Um, Neku also has no memory of what was what, how he died or um, kind of what was happening. So you you find out like how he how he died. Um, so it's it's also a, a mystery. Um, which I it was a story that I ultimately found very emotionally affecting, um, but mostly it's just such a smart, um, it's had such smart gameplay mechanics. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and again, super cool art, great music, uh, just an all around really solid game experience. Nice. Uh, also, I haven't thought about the Nintendo DS in quite some time. <laughs> I'm looking at mine right now. Nice. I bought a special edition one when Pokemon X and Y came out. Ah, that that checks out. Number 62 is the graphic novel slash comic epic space opera fantasy comic book by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. Um, it is, as they pitched it, Star Wars meets Game of Thrones meets Romeo and Juliet. Uh, it stars Alana, a uh, member of a species of techno-focused aliens with wings, called the Wings, uh, and Marco... Uh, a member of the species of the horns. Uh, they use magic, and their two species are locked in a interstellar war, and the two fall in love and have a child, which should be impossible. Uh, that child's existence would wreck so much propaganda between both of the, the antagonists. Uh, we also get a bunch of other wonderful characters, such as Prince Robot IV, a... Uh, creature who has a television for a head uh the higher up in the royal family you are the bigger the television um there is uh the best character in comics ever to be created lying cat who can determine if you are lying or not and will i indicate that by saying lying um and it it charts their family and found families travails over uh, the first what maybe four or five years of their daughter's existence um hazel is their daughter um it unfortunately it didn't get canceled but it has ended its run currently on a bit of a cliffhanger um and there was no ongoing it's been on a hiatus there we go since uh, july 2018 um and i i would love for it to come back at some point uh, but the, the visual, the art is incredible. Uh, yeah, Vaughn and Staples work very closely together uh, to to sort of co-create this, and Vaughn has very much been upfront about like Staples has is a co-creator. It's not a just writers writing and artists arting. It's it's a collaboration. I'm truly afraid to say this. Would you like to tell us the name of the comic you're talking <laughs> about, Pete? No. <laughs> no. Um. So the comic. <laughs> Pete is talking about Saga. <laughs> I was afraid to interrupt you. Oh, boy. I know, Saga's great. Um, it took me a little bit to get into. I actually had to read the first two volumes a couple of times before it really clicked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I read, like, all eight of the available trades in one sitting. 
Um, I was actually reading them on Hoopla, a library mm. ebook app, um, which limits you by how many loans you can check out per month. <laughs> uh, you must uh, have just I, something clawing at the walls. I hit the end of my loans before I reached the end of the series. Um, but luckily, that's when I remembered that I have two library cards because I also work at a library. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm running a one shot now in D&D on Roll20, and one of my uh, players used a picture of, a, of one of the horns in Saga as her character picture uh, and didn't tell me that. She was just like, here's my character picture. And I'm like, oh, that looks a lot like a Saga, a character from Saga. And she's like, it's because it's a character from Saga. <laughs> Yeah, my favorite character is the ghost nanny. The ghost nanny is so good. She's like a teenager with, um... Her entrails falling out. Her entrails falling out in, like, skater garb. I don't know, like a beanie and uh, wrist bands. Yeah. yeah. Saga's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my next, number 61, Betrayal of the House on the Hill, which is my favorite board game of all time. It's so much fun. Uh, this is a Scooby-Doo type haunted house game where you build the game as you go. It is a co-op game until it is not. Uh, you are all playing people that are exploring a haunted house. Every time you open a new, every time you look in a new room, you get to flip a new tile. So that board is different every time you play. Uh, and at a certain point, you trigger what is called a haunt, which is the the big event of the game. And sometimes frequently the haunt means that somebody in your party is now your adversary so it is co-op while you are exploring uh and then once the haunt is triggered it becomes um combative one versus the rest usually sometimes yeah it's, usually it, yeah so the the big thing about this is that there are like 70 plus different haunting scenarios um because it changes based on what room you are in and what object you're holding when the haunt triggers so it really is a different experience every time you play uh some of the haunts are better than others the reasons mm -hmm. this the reason this isn't higher on my list is because some of the haunts are truly tedious like there are a couple where um if the circumstances like if you haven't found the right rooms or you haven't found the right objects it's like oh well we're just gonna lose yeah. um there was one game I played that took probably three hours. The, right. the the survivors ended up winning, and like the final confrontation was one of those like for the three people still sitting around the table, it was a buck wild dice rolling bonanza of like ah, and for the two other people whose characters had already died who were in the other room watching TV, it was just like whatever. Yeah, if this, this game like always, is this game still happening? If this game was always ninety minutes, it would be a perfect game. Yeah. Um. But the, I think its biggest strength is also occasionally its biggest weakness. Yes. Um, also, because of you, me and my friends called this scary house game. Ever, it's not because of me. So my husband used to work at a game store. Um, and when they would sell this game, they it was known colloquially at Hobby Town as the scary house game because Betrayal at the House on the Hill is a mouthful. Um, and because of that, that is just sort of the name that has been spread uh source being my husband and all of his friends who worked at hobby town and hobby town has i'm, I'm really... low-key surprised this game was out when hobby town exists i'm surprised that this coexisted with hobby town uh, yeah i'm not sure when it was initially published mm -hmm. um we don't need to look that up okay <laughs> um but hobby town is really kind of the six degrees of seven bacon for our friends he like yeah yeah um so like 
you will occasionally, or I will occasionally run into people at like the Gen Con convention who call this the scary house game. And it's because, <laughs> and you're like, they, you have someone who worked at hobby town or like someone right. in your circle, somebody yeah. who worked at hobby town, like moved to Michigan and now like knows them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so number 60 on the list is The Way of Kings, the first book in the Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson. Um, I've talked about this book and this series and this author on this podcast quite frequently. Uh, it's your classic doorstopper fantasy tome. Um, I think Sanderson is the best fantasy writer in the high fantasy doorstopper tome genre of fantasy, uh, working in the field today. Uh, his, he's all about very detailed magic systems. Um, and this book is, this series is a magnum opus. There's so many ideas happening. And also it's, it is psychologically complex in a way that I really appreciate. Um, if you like your thousand page, if you like your fantasy series to come in multiple books, each of approximately a thousand pages, this is the series for you, and start with The Way of Kings. I'll take your word for it. Yep, you will not be reading it. <laughs> <laughs> Number 59 is The Shining by Stephen King. Mm, great, great book, great movie that Stephen King has disavowed. Uh, incorrectly, but whatever. I, I'm not going to yeah, elaborate. Like, I, this, is a different, <laughs> this is a different discussion. <laughs> um, uh, no, the Shining, it's my favorite King. Hmm. We can move on. Okay. Uh, number 58 is a total nostalgia pick for me. Uh, it's U2's Joshua Tree album, uh, produced by Brian Eno, among others. Um, U2 gets a bad rap these days for reasons both deserved and undeserved. But uh, 1988, when Joshua Tree came out, uh, this album is just an absolute stone-cold classic. And um, I low-key love U2. So this this is a deep nostalgic slash formulaic uh, like it, it formed me pop culture wise. Um, I've been into this album since I was like I don't know six. So it's it's my deep cut, my youngest uh, uh, pick I think on this list. I have no YouTube feelings. I'm sorry. Uh, neither pro nor con. No. Well, that's I'm fine. deeply apathetic to them. <laughs> All right. Yeah. G give Joshua Tree a whirl, and then you'll be like, yeah, I don't know, that that was music. Uh, I mean, I've, 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 I've listened recognize to some it. of those songs. I've, <laughs> right. I've listened to it. I'm a person that exists in pop culture. Um, <laughs> no, I just, I, I do not feel one way or another about you two. That's fair. Uh, number 57, I have another book, uh, The Book of Lost Things by John Connolly. Uh, this book came out in 2006 uh, and is about a boy named 12, or a boy of 12 named David who um, hears the voice of his dead mother calling to him through a crack in a stone wall mm. uh, and goes through the wall to find her uh, and mm. ends up in a very dark fantasy world uh, that is deeply influenced by fairy tales that you and I recognize, but like, shifted to the left so like this is not a children's book i am absolutely um, adding this to my goodreads this is like incredible. so um, many of the things i'm into yeah so david it's about david's journey through this fantasy world to find his mother but also make peace with the fact that she's dead uh and also kind of ends up saving it from like the evil witch that has taken over um it's beautiful 
John Connolly writes very, very effectively about loss. Um, he also weaves a lot of very good horror into his fantasy, which I am mm. also um, a big fan of. Uh, if you enjoy this one, Pete, he's done um, at least one and probably multiple um, collections of short stories, hmm. which are incredible. Um, but on, yeah, this is one of my favorite books. On the Neil Gaiman spectrum of like reinterpreting folktales and stuff, where is he falling? I don't understand the question. Like, like you know, you and I both love Neil Gaiman. Uh, you, spoiler alert, have a Neil Gaiman uh, further up on the list. I feel like this this could read like uh, Stardust. Um, it's much darker than Stardust. Like Stardust is a little. This Stardust is kind of funny and tongue in cheek, and mm-hmm. this one is not. Okay, this is the these this is the Pratchett Elves. No, this is much more like pan, like a Pan's Labyrinth. Well, that story. that is an excellent segue to our number fifty six, <laughs> which is uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, did, were you looking at that list, or did that come out of nowhere? No, that came out of nowhere because it's a legit comparison. Oh, like, well, in terms of in terms of how it is using fairy tale ideas and also the just the darkness of well, the material. Well, here we go then on the on the uh, del Toro to Neil Gaiman spectrum. It's more on the del Toro side. Yes. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Um, also, number fifty-six in our list is *Pan's Labyrinth*, a excellent adult fairy tale about the Spanish Civil War and a little girl trying to get through it. Um, she either uh, discovers a magical world of a phone and um, goes through uh, some trials and tribulations, including um, having to steal something from Mitch McConnell uh, and and losing some fairy companions in that confrontation. Um, I just got what you meant. <laughs> uh, I am talking, of course, about the Pale Man, played yes. by uh, the inim- inimitable Doug Jones. Um, yes. uh, and eventually, uh, she is able to rejoin the, the fairy court, uh, her parents, her true parents, uh, or possibly she imagined it all and dies at the end. Uh, it's up to the viewer to determine, but the entire movie is incredible. Yeah, whether or not I believe in the fantasy elements of this movie depends entirely on what kind of mood I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is because Del Toro is a very skillful filmmaker and has left it purposefully uh, indetermined. The way he interweaves the fantasy elements and the real elements is A+. Uh, we have, I don't think we've ever actually assigned this, but we have assigned recently The Devil's Backbone, which uh, Del Toro... No, we did. We, we did, did assign because this? we did a we did a fairy tales themed mm. episode and we talked about this as being a modern rather than a reinterpretation of a fairy tale like a, a new like, fairy tale yes yes uh, and this is absolutely a new and an adult fairy tale um uh del toro has compared this as a, a sibling piece with the devil's backbone which we have assigned somewhat recently and i think this does the ideas that he's playing with in the devil's backbone just way way more like adeptly there is a really interesting through line in Del Toro's filmography from The Devil's Backbone to Pan's Labyrinth to Crimson Peak mm, that mm-hmm. is really fascinating to, yeah. to look at. Yeah. Um, number 55, I have chosen the 1999 seminal sci-fi movie, The Matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, you stole this out from under me. <laughs> <laughs> this is the hill that I will die on. The Matrix is our generational defining movie. I don't disagree. 
and I don't know if you mean it as broadly as I do, but it is both the good and the bad. It is about people being both afraid of and indelibly linked with technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and how technology is both a necessary part of their existence, but also inherently harmful. Uh, it was also created by two trans women, which mm-hmm. I think, which also makes it a very interesting exploration of gender and gender identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I've had many, many arguments with friends of mine over what our like generational zeitgeist movie is. And it's the Matrix. Like I, I will brook no. I, I will I, brook no arguments. I co-signed everything, and in terms of the bad, uh, the men's right movement took the term "red pill" from it. Like it is, its influence is wide, varied, critical, and I think you're right. Like it has informed our entire generation and beyond. Yeah, I mean, I, it's also I, a great I, film. It is. Um, and I don't think it is exaggeration to say that many of us think about technology through the lens of this movie. It's I am fairly certain this was the first movie I saw on DVD, uh, which, like, if you want to talk about layers of technology, it's like, oh, DVD. It is not the first movie that I owned on DVD. We will get not to that owned, one later. Not owned. Saw. Uh, oh. I, I was at a cousin's place. He was showing us scenes. And at one point, uh, my aunt came in and is like, your cousins are too young. You can't be showing them this. <laughs> uh, but it was DVD. So he could like skip to different scenes using the menu. Nice. It also yeah. spawned the Animatrix, which is one of the best anthology movies that's hmm. ever been made. Hmm. Interesting. I have not which thought I... of the Animatrix in years it almost made my list hmm. and then i thought that it would be weird to put both the matrix and the animatrix <laughs> on the same list all right uh number 54 uh it's another music choice from me it is the talking heads album fear of music uh this has some absolute stone cold bangers on it including life during wartime um heaven uh cities and then some weird choices that i particularly like such as Izimbra, a song whose lyrics are entirely derived from uh dadaist hugo ball's poem uh gaji bara bimba which is all just made up words um and also uh animals which is a, a weird album <laughs> or a weird song um it's talking heads at both their best and their most art schooly. um and we've talked about before that I, like Loki, really love Talking Heads. So I did want to throw this on here. Uh, life, Both Life During Wartime and Heaven are um, maybe in my top, I don't know, 25 songs. Um, so uh, it's great. Life During Wartime by Talking Heads. I know you're not a big Talking Heads person. You don't dislike them, but you have no real strong opinions. I was going to say, they're another one that I just have no feelings or opinions about i'd recommend that you watch the hbo movie uh, uh concert movie i'm putting that in scare quotes american utopia which is david burns uh, of the talking heads most recent thing uh directed by spike jones nope directed by spike lee um different very different, different. very different i always confuse the two um directed by spike lee and it's it is a glorious, like, hey, don't you miss concerts? Well, here's a concert in your own home. 
Um, and even though you don't like talking heads, I think you still might just enjoy... Not, I was going to say, it's not that I don't like them. Right, they, I just... you just don't have an opinion on them. Yeah. But, like, if you're just like, man, I miss big live music events. I miss, like, I don't know. There's an excitement and a frisson to watching live music. And, and the American Utopia is uh, really delightful and very of the time uh, right now. So um, if that's a thing that you're interested in, I'd recommend you watch it. Okay. Uh, number 53, um, I have put The Raven Cycle by Maggie Stiefvater. This is a quartet, another quartet of books. Uh, unlike The Monstromologist, I did not pick just one because these four books are such of a piece for me um, that I cannot really separate one out. Mm -hmm. um, this is a, a quartet of books about a group of teens who are obsessed with finding the lost Welsh king Glendower mm. and all of the magic that they encounter on the way and what finding him would mean to each one of them. Wait, is this is this Owen Glendower? Yes. Oh, wild. That's <laughs> wild. <laughs> um, but the characters in this, like, I am sort of prone to getting very emotionally involved with characters that I love. And because I initially read these books as an adult, um, I feel very protective over them. Mm -hmm. So you have, you have blue who is the girl um, and she comes from a family of psychics. Um, but she has no psychic powers. Um, so she has to kind of deal with being in her whole family's shadow. And then she gets involved with this group of four boys, one of whom, like his obsession with finding Glendower uh, is kind of strong enough that it is carrying through to all four of them. And as the, as the books go on, you, you get to know each of them individually and kind of what they are all actually looking for. Um, because Glendower is a metaphor, except when he super <laughs> isn't. <laughs> Glendower is the friends we made along the way, and also literally a... Uh, a, uh, a dead Welsh king, yes. A 15th century Welsh prince, yes. Um. yes. Um, but no, it's a great fantasy adventure. It meshes high fantasy ideas with like modern urban fantasy settings. Um, she has... Maggie Stiefvater, the author, is two books now into a follow-up series about a couple of the boys slightly older, um, one of whom, when he dreams, he can pull things out of his dreams to make them real. Freaking cool. Yeah, it's it's just really, um, truly lovely. These are ones that I listen to on audio because my dude, Will Patton, reads them. Mm. <laughs> um. And they, they take place in West Virginia, so his very soothing kind of southern drawl feels very appropriate. Wait, hold on. Um, They're looking for the Welsh Prince Owen Glendower, and yes. it takes place in West Virginia? Yes. Interesting. It is all explained. I, I believe you. In the books. <laughs> it, this is just wild to me, this entire idea. I think it's fascinating. You should read them. I actually I, think that you would enjoy them. I will probably listen to them at some point, because I'm, I'm rapidly running out of... Uh, uh, fantasy novels to to read as i'm crushing all the the sanderson you i think i mean all four of them together are probably the equivalent in length to one sanderson yeah but, right right um 
Yeah, these are another, this is another set that I listen to almost annually, mm. just because they make me happy. Nice. And well, number 52 on our list is uh, Kraken by China Mieville. I'm delighted to learn that this is also Martha's favorite uh, China Mieville book. Um, it's about squids and cults. It's about squids and cults <laughs> in London. And also there's like city mages and there's a dude who's a living tattoo. And I don't know, China Mieville is all about weird fiction. And it turns out that weird fiction is apparently the intersection of everything I like. And China Mieville is an author, adds his own sprinkle on top of um, pretentious erudition that I vibe with very much. Um I could totally understand if his writing style doesn't work for you, but for me, I'm like, yes, give me more of that, please. And tell me more about your uh, stolen giant squid from the museum uh, that is being used as a arcane ritual conduit uh, as we are we deal with, like, London mancers and, yeah, every everything else in this book. It, it reminds me a little bit of... Um... What's the Neil Gaiman book that takes place? Neverwhere. Yes. yes. It reminds me of Neverwhere, only it's good. I, I I also had serious Neverwhere vibes, and I also thought of it as similar to Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon. Uh, in the sense of the running joke of Cryptonomicon, it is, it is the most information-dense fiction book uh, that exists. Kraken is the most idea-dense fantasy book I've read. Uh, every page, there's a, another idea where you're just like, that could be the concept for an entire book. And it's a one-off paragraph that you're just moving on from. I, yeah, I would I would rank it up there with N.K. Jemisin and yep. like the city we became. Yep, yep. Also has very strong vibes of that. Yes. Um, number 51. Our last one for this uh, Which is going to wrap up our episode. Nice. Um, I have Gail Simone's new 52 Batgirl run. So in 2011, DC launched the New 52, which, like Mar Marvel Ultimates, was a way to give people an entry point into their series. Um, it is also how I started reading, how I became a regular comic reader hmm. as an adult. Mm -hmm. um, Batgirl, Gail Simone, first of all, is an incredible writer. Yes. Um, she is also an A plus Twitter follower or Twitter follow hmm. if you are on Twitter. I don't follow her. Oh my god. Okay, that's well, a separate yes. conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's right. incredible. Um, but her Batgirl is one of the first comics I started buying every month when it was released. Um, her Barbara exists post the killing joke. So this is a Barbara for whom she was shot and paralyzed and did a stretch as Oracle. Um, but one of the more controversial choices that they made in the new 52 was to put her through rehab and give her, uh, her mobility back. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the new 52, she is just starting to get her legs under her as Batgirl again. Um, I did not realize that they had her actually go through rehab. I thought it was a magic wand situation. No, she she goes through um, that. That changes my opinion of this arc for the better. Um, I I understand why people were upset about it. Um, but for me, one of the things that I love about this is Barbara rediscovering 
her joy at being a superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just like the villains are really great. She moves out and her roommate is fantastic. One of the best new characters um, that I think DC had. It made me bummed that after Gail Simone left the title, they basically, I, I don't know that Alicia will ever show up in any book again. Um, but no, it's, it's great. And it was my entry point back into comics in a lot of ways. I know the new 52 got a lot of bad press, but I, I don't think it can be overstated how important reboots can be to new comic readers. Yeah. You've had uh, at least one other reboot on your list so far and all the other graphic, no- or you've had two reboots. Um, on your well, this list. one and X-Men. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and then the only other graphic novel we have is Saga, which is self-contained. Um, yeah, like, and I also think that... Oh, and, and uh, sorry, and, uh, 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 uh Freak Angels, also self-contained. Like, like, New 52 had some clunkers, um, but it also had some really fun stuff. Like, mm-hmm. the new, the new Swamp thing I thought was really fun, um, related the new animal man i thought was really fun (laughs) um and also like who was reading animal man before that right right um i thought it was i thought it did a really good job in kind of bringing awareness to titles that i had never really heard of before and it gave me a way uh to jump into them and you know batgirl i have always loved like the idea of batgirl like she's a librarian which rules this gave me an entry point into actually getting to read about Batgirl. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, now. Yeah. yeah I'm all in. <laughs> I'm all in however they want to tell Babs' story. Like, <laughs> Batgirl of Burnsides, I really enjoyed. Um, you know, she's great. We're done. Cool. We're done with this episode. Um, thank, thank you, you all. Oh. <laughs> Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, this was a very long episode. Uh, next episode will probably be just as long, uh, cause we're indulging ourselves. It's our hundredth episode. That's so exciting. Um, if you're still and honestly, list- the closer we get to number one, the more stuff we have that we both agree on, which, uh, which will either make these episodes longer or shorter. Unclear. Yes. <laughs> um, well, you can, if you're still listening, you know where to find us. Any podcatcher, give us that rating, give us that good review. Uh, that's how the algorithms help bump us up that's what we want um you can follow us on twitter and instagram at dydyh podcast and you can follow us on facebook by searching for did you do your homework uh you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com definitely drop us a line on any of those locations uh martha what are you plugging uh you can follow me on all the places at magical martha including letterboxd where i have started making ranked lists of movies because god knows i love a list (laughs) Um, I also write a newsletter sometimes, uh, tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Uh, also listen to my other podcast, Love Ya, which releases on the same feed on alternating Wednesdays. We just did an episode on Moxie, the new YA adaptation on Netflix. Nice. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000, that's P-I-K-O-3000, where we're talking politics and pop culture, as always, and also Wellington the Penguin and his friends from the Shed Aquarium, as always. Um, and apparently, yeah, you can follow me on Letterboxd, too. It's P. Romberg, um, and I don't rate, review, or list the movies that I 
post. I just log what I'm watching because uh, Letterboxd is for me. Uh, but Martha, I'm about to follow you on it because I think that'd be a good follow. Yeah, I don't review things. I just give them star rankings. And I, like I said, I have only recently started um, making lists. I actually, I have made a comprehensive list that is ongoing of all of, it is the definitive ranking of all of the movies we have watched for Love Ya. Oh, that's a really good list. Cool. Well, that is going to do it for us tonight. Thank you all so much for listening uh, for this at this two hour uh, episode. And until next time, class dismissed.